We are looking at uh, John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, verses 39 to 42. Trade together. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that I ever did, uh, that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this indeed is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Let's uh, commit this time to him now. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your blessed word. We just thank you that you've preserved it for us in such perfect fashion. Lord, we, uh, our lives depend on the truthfulness of this word and we uh, have come to know it uh, intimately. You have taught us directly from it. You have saved ourselves through it. And Father, we now feed uh, on it daily, Lord, that we might grow um, stronger and more mature uh, in the faith. We pray for your blessing upon us now as we seek for your uh, grace and your wisdom uh, that we might uh, not just learn this word so it's in our heads, but that we would learn it so it's in our hearts and we would live it. So we just pray for your blessing. We just thank you for your presence and we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now we've spent the last uh, day and Friday evening looking at the subject of evangelism and how to share the gospel and what that means. What is the gospel? What's evangelism? What's a witness? Um, and my prayer is that during this, these last uh, days and including uh, today, that we would have an extra uh, instilling of urgency um, with respect to this, this subject. Uh, it's easy for us to sort of slip into a, a neutral mode uh, in our culture. There are so many things that consume our time. We're so busy in our own lives, running from here to there, that it's so easy just to forget and put these things to the side that aren't sort of slotted in, that aren't, um, that aren't at, f- at the forefront of our thinking. Um, but what I'm also hoping, apart from uh, having an, uh, an urgency about it, is that we'd be more encouraged uh, to speak uh, the words that changed our life to others as well, to share those same words, because they've changed our lives. And if we say they've genuinely changed our lives, then we should want other people's lives changed and blessed the way we've been blessed. So it's only a matter of um, being loving and kind um, to share what we have with them. And as we discovered yesterday, there's plenty of ways to share the gospel. Plenty of ways. There's tracks, you can talk to people directly, you can do it as a team, you can go out and preach in the middle of the city, you can, you can do a whole lot of different ways. And actually there are different avenues of sharing the gospel as well. You can pick up a phone and talk to someone, you can send them an email, you can, send them, you can put something on a website, you can, you can, there's plenty of ways to do it. One-on-one, we, we, I think we all agreed, was probably the best way because uh, people want that interaction today with all of the social media that takes place and everyone's connected with everyone else people are more lonely today than any any time else Uh, so having someone to speak to and someone who can understand you and sympathize with you goes a long way Uh, people are looking for good friends these days so uh, being a friend to people is often a good way to build that bridge toward them Um, there are plenty of ways to share the gospel but there are also plenty of obstacles in sharing the gospel. A lot of people have preconceived ideas about what the gospel is and what Christians are like and, and how a Christian is all about. And, and so sometimes well, I, understand, I understand that when you're sharing something with someone, when you're sharing the truth with them, that oftentimes um, we get resistance because they've already got something in their head and they've already prejudged what we're going to tell them before we even say it. So there's that hurdle to, to overcome. And sometimes people have other problems within their own lives. And then there's a problem of sin and the flesh nature, which doesn't want to hear the gospel. It's afraid of the gospel because it has to change. It has to give up uh, stuff. So anyway, it's, there are blessings, there are avenues, there are opportunities that we have, but there are also obstacles to overcome. Um, but we also discovered that it's the Lord that prepares the way to spread the, to spread the gospel and share the gospel. He goes ahead of us just as the Lord 
um, the picture we had with the, uh, the, the shepherd, the series on the shepherd that I did. He goes before us, doesn't he? So not only does he go before us and show us the path, he also goes before us before we go and share the gospel. So he knows already who it is on that train or on that bus or at that workplace or in your homes or whatever it is that you're going to be sitting next to. And you're going to have an opportunity to share that gospel. He already knows that beforehand. So he's already working ahead of time. He already knows. Everything's all, all, uh, all organized when it comes to him. The question is for us is that whether we're ready to speak the words that he would have us to speak. Or whether we're too afraid to speak them or whether we're distracted by other things. But it's the Lord that opens the doors to the gospel. We looked at a few examples of that uh, yesterday um, with the Ethiopian eunuch. God was already working on his heart. He was uh, what, they, what the Bible calls a God-fearer or God-fearing person. And, and we found that many of the examples in the Bible, where the, um, in the book of Acts, where the apostles have gone out and shared the gospel with people, these people are already God-fearing, which means they already had come to the conclusion. And they may have come from the Gentile nations. They may have been pagans. They may have been uh, who knows what, okay? But they already had been worked on by the Jews to believe in one God. And then once they believed in one God, they became God-fearing people and they were ready to receive the gospel. So our goal is to share the gospel with whoever it is that we come across, whether they're God-fearing or not God-fearing, but there are different ways to share the gospel. But the question is, and the thing is, that we need to be confident enough that God's gone before us, that he's already there wherever we are, He's already there in the midst and he can give you the right words to speak. And we don't need to speak a thousand words. Okay? You, don't, you don't need to go on for one hour like I do on a Sunday morning. Okay? <laughs> Praveen shared with me the other day that, that I go with him every day on his bike ride. And I said, what are, you talking, what are you talking about, brother? Last time I rode a bike, I smashed it and it's no longer in existence, that bike. Um, and he said, oh, he goes, no, I go on an hour-long bike ride. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. He goes, I go on an hour-long bike ride, and there aren't any other, there aren't many other people who talk for a full hour. They can keep me occupied for a whole hour while I'm on my bike. So I said, thank you very much for that. I'll take it as a compliment. Um, but when you share the gospel, oftentimes we think I've got to give them everything. I have to. If I've got to tell them about this, and I've got to tell them about that. And if I forget something, you know, how many times have we gone away from left a conversation and we said to ourselves, Oh, if only I told them this. You know, how many of us have done that, honestly? We all do it. Like I've told them, you, know, you probably told them about 20 things, but yet that 21st one would have been so right. Um, we don't need to think like that. If you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, you know, even the one or two things that you share, if it's done with, with the right intent, if it's done with, the, with wisdom, um, they'll take it. But just keep, bear this in mind. We have lunch today together, okay? Now... I know some of you have better appetites than other people. But if I try to force food down your throat, okay? Like, let's say you go and get your own plate and you, you have five things on that plate and you're happily eating away and you finish that plate and then I say, no, that's not enough. You have to now have a second plate and a third plate and a fourth plate. Tell me how, tell me how you'd feel about that. You'll, if you accept, if you're intimidated, right? because I can be pretty intimidating, apparently. If you're intimidated by me, um, and you say, all right, Pastor, I'll have the second and third plate, um, you may get indigestion as a result. Or you may find it a very unhappy occasion for you to finish those second and third plates. Yet sometimes when we share the gospel, we think we have to give them the first course, second course, third course, and dessert. And on top of that, maybe an extra sweet or lolly at the end as well, just in case we haven't hit all the right notes. Um, remember, this thing is about, um, and I, it took a long time for me to get saved, and I'm sure you weren't saved just overnight the first time you heard the gospel. Because oftentimes it takes the seeds to be planted, and then to be watered, and then more to be planted, and more to be watered, and more to be planted, and more to be watered, until things start clicking into place. Okay? And oftentimes when we give someone too much information, we're actually overloading them, and they can't digest what we've given them, and so they don't digest anything. So just remember that there's, there's wisdom and also understanding that a tree doesn't grow overnight except you're, if, you're, um, if you're Jonah. Um, but trees don't grow overnight. They take a long time to grow. A harvest doesn't grow overnight, but it needs 
cultivating, it needs, uh, it needs water, it needs attention. And that's the same way we should be with the people that we love and we should be with the, with the ones that we're sharing the gospel with. It's, everything's a long-term proposition here. But also, it doesn't just depend on us. You see, this is God who does the, uh, the growing here. It's God who actually does the, the blessing. Um, he just uses us to speak the words at the right time. We're simply called to plant seeds of truth in people's lives. And if a seed's been planted in someone's life, um, maybe they don't need another seed. Maybe they just need a little bit of watering. I gave the example yesterday. Uh, you know, maybe someone had shared the love of Christ with someone, right? And said that God loves you and God so loved the world that he gave you his only begotten son so that you, you might not perish but have everlasting life. And that person might be thinking about that love. You know, you might come along next and maybe the door doesn't open of conversa- for conversation, but let's say you get to show them the love of Christ. Well, then what you've done is you've reinforced the very thing that they're, they're thinking about and God's working on them about. Do you understand? And so that's watering the seed that's already there. And maybe God opens up another opportunity to share another uh, seed with them. But the thing is about following what the Spirit leads and where, he, where he's leading. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, just to, just to, just to labour a little bit more on that point. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Now listen to these words carefully. I, I, I have planted, it's the Apostle Paul, okay? So he's not a one-man team either. He's not the one who does everything by himself. There are no mavericks when it comes to the, uh, to the, to the kingdom of God or the, or the gospel. Paul the Apostle, who has set, was separated to, for the gospel, says, I have planted, Apollos water, watered, but God gave the increase. He realized who's the one who actually is, the, at the end of the day, uh, bringing salvation. Verse 7 says, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Who's the important one? It's God. This is all about God. He's the one who gives the increase. So we can be planting all day. You can be watering all day. But if it's not God at work in the person's life and, and, and getting that message through to them, then uh, all that's in vain. Verse 8 says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. In other words, they work together as a team. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour. So praise God for that. He even rewards us for stuff that we should be doing automatically. But look at verse 9. For we are labourers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Isn't that funny the way he's ended that? It seems like it's a totally different thing that he's talking about. But we are labourers together with God. So I find that a privilege to be working together with God. If God's on a mission, if God's working on something, and he says, yeah, come along and work with me. Mate, isn't that like an unbelievable thing? I mean, how many, how many children um, over the years, over the centuries, and have watched their fathers maybe work in a particular field, and they've looked at them and said, oh, wow, I wish I could do that. You know, and they say, Dad, can I help with that? And then the, the, first, you know, the first time their dad might say, yeah, come along, here, I'll show you how to use a power saw. Um, the kid goes, yay! God does the same thing with us. God's the expert here. Right? God's the expert. He's done this thing. He knows how to do it. And when he says, come along here, let me show you this. I mean, we're like little children. That he says, here, come and hold it here. Now come and hold it here. Now push this little button over here. And what he's doing the whole time is actually he's got his hand on top of ours. And he's helping us to push. That's the way God is with us. So we should never think of ourselves more highly because we're still children compared to him. He's the one who gives the increase. At the end of the day, if, uh, if a, a master tradesman builds a table, okay, if, if a carpenter builds a table and it comes out perfectly, but he has his five-year-old son helping him to build that table who's really built the table has the son actually sped up the father has sped up the job made the job better no it's just the privilege to be working with that with that with that uh that person so whatever we do to share the gospel according to these verses shows us that sharing the gospel is a team effort but sharing the gospel is really all about god it's all about him so for us we need to be alert and working out and finding out where he is, that, that he's working. 
And the amazing thing is that we're rewarded for our efforts, but we need to understand that, that He's working on us. Because look at the end of that verse. He says, But ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. So all the while that we are, we think that we're sharing the gospel and doing all these things and we're getting rewarded for them and all this sort of stuff, we're thinking, look at the way God's used me. What's actually happening is that he's actually working on us at the same time. He's building us up. So we look at our example today of sharing the gospel, and this is probably one of the best passages in the New Testament that you could actually look at on how to share the gospel with someone, and Jesus does it perfectly, obviously. Um, we can learn a lot from the way the Lord the way the Lord spoke to this woman at the well. We can learn how he took a simple conversation and a simple um, uh, situation and turned it into an opportunity to share the gospel with her. So I want us to look at this and then compare it maybe to ourselves and what simple situations could we uh, find ourselves in where God brings someone into our, uh, our presence and we could use it to actually talk about the gospel and bring up that seed that might be planted that they need. All right, but before we look at this passage again, which is uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to be beginning from verse 1, um, we're going to look at just a, just a bit of a background to this whole Samaritan and Jew thing. So most of you understand... You've heard the word Samaritan. You might have an understanding of, of, of who they are. But it's good for us to understand what relationship the Jews had with the Samaritans. Or in a nutshell, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews saw Samaritans as dogs. You couldn't actually put in a better word. <laughs> they saw them as dogs. They saw them as, as not fit. They were considered half-breeds by the, by the Jews, by the people of, of pure Jewish origin. And Samaria was a region north, uh, north of uh, Jerusalem, and they were the descendants of both Jews and Assyrians. So they were a bit of a mix. Okay? When, uh, when the uh, Assyrians captured the northern tribes, the, the, the ten northern tribes of Israel, in seven, around 720 BC, they were taken captive into, um, into Assyria. Some were left. They normally leave the old people behind. Um, and it says in 2 Kings, if you want to take it down as a reference, in 2 Kings 17.6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, uh, the, king of, the, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried, carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halah and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. So he took them away. Like imagine someone coming to Melbourne and pretty much taking everyone away. That's a huge thing. That's exactly what happened to them. The king of Assyria, then what he did, so that those lands wouldn't be uh, wasted, he sent people from his kingdom, from Assyria, into that area, into Samaria, so they would settle it and look after the actual uh, land. And what's interesting about that time is that uh, a number of them were being killed by lions and wild, wild beasts. But they had brought with them the worship of their own gods. And the, and the king of Assyria said, yeah, you know what it is? It's that local God, that pesky God, uh, what's his name again? Jehovah. He's causing problems. Get the people to start worshipping him. So we find the people in, the, in, in Samaria went from being completely pagan and, and, and idolaters. They started to worship the, the God of the Bible. Uh, mainly out of self-preservation, mind you. Okay. But the Samaritans had their own unique uh, copy of the scriptures. So they had the, the different version of the, the first five books of scripture. They had their own place where they worshipped. They didn't worship in, uh, in Jerusalem or in the temple. They had their, they'd built, built their own. And in Jesus' days, they despised each other a fair bit. There was a history of bitterness between them. When the Jews returned, they were carried away. When, when Judah, the southern, so southern kingdom, was carried away into Babylon. Okay, This is another time. Um, and they returned, well, after they returned from their, um, their exile into Babylon, the Samaritans came to them and said, um, do you want us to help you build the temple? They made them an offer. And the Jews said, no, nah, we don't want your help. You're only going to ruin it for us. So that, you know, when, when you offer someone help, and when they say, I don't want your help, Get away from me. Uh, that tends to make people angry sometimes, right? So there was not only there was that. So the, the, the Samaritans, 
uh, said, we're not worshipping in Jerusalem. So they built their own temple around 400 BC on Mount Gerizim or, or Gerizim, Gerizim or Gerizim. Anyway, they built their own temple and in 128 BC, the Jews burnt it down. 128, so 128 years before roughly what Christ came, um, the Jews burnt down the, the actual uh, Samaritan's temple. So there's a, there's a fair bit of animosity between those, uh, those two. But not only was, uh, was there animosity, but if you, called, if you were a Jew and you called someone a Samaritan, it was the worst insult you could give them. In fact, they insulted Jesus this way too. The, in, in one particular passage in John 8, 48, it says, then, then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and has a devil? That's two big, um, that's two big uh, uh, rebukes or insults uh, to someone. You're, you're, you're actually uh, possessed by a demon or by a devil and you're a Samaritan on top of that as well. So there was some pretty, some pretty serious uh, uh, animosity between those two. And what riled up the Jews even more is that when Jesus started explaining what it meant to really love your neighbour, who does he use as an example of who showed that love? He used a Samaritan. So he probably rolled them up a little bit because of that as well. Anyway, but let's go to John chapter um, 4, verse 1 to 4. And we'll begin to look at this passage. And we'll see what Jesus does when he's sharing the gospel with this, uh, with this woman. So it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptised not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. So he had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Okay, so he left Judea, he has to get to Galilee, but he's got to go through Samaria. So, you know, one of the things that we know is absolutely true is that Jesus always did what his father wanted him to do. You know, if his father didn't want him to go through Samaria, he would have taken the long way around, okay? Or whatever else may have, he may have asked him to do. He always went where the Spirit led him. And we saw this... Uh, with the apostles in the book of Acts, with those examples that we had on Saturday, and with Philip and, and Peter and, and Paul, um, the Lord was even led into the, remember, as soon as he started his ministry after he was baptised, it says the Spirit led him into the desert, or into the wilderness. Um, one of the important things to understand um, about ourselves is that if we walk in obedience, if we're... If we're um, living a life in submission to the Lord um, and we're following his lead in our lives, he may lead you to places that seem to be out of the way or don't even seem to be the right place. Now, Samaria wasn't exactly the place where you might have thought it was the place for him to go. But in, in lead, go, making them go through Samaria, God had already, God the Father already planned a particular interaction to take place. And that happens with us as well. You may find yourself um, here. You may find yourself um, having an accident. You may find yourself sick and ill. You may find yourself wherever it is. Um, be prepared always, wherever you may find yourself, that God has something lined up for you. Okay? Um, and oftentimes it's not, it's not for God's lack of planning. It's our lack of attention. Okay? God has prepared works for us already to do. Actually, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. Remember I said he's working on us. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So God's already got your works planned out. The question is, will you walk in those, in those works? Will you, you and I walk in them? And that takes obedience to do that. And that takes being Attentive, listening, watching. So the story in this particular case might seem like just a coincidence or a fluke, but it's very important that, that Jesus obeyed what the Father or where the Spirit was leading him because God had something very important planned. Okay? Verse 5 says, Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, 
and it was about the sixth hour. Just first thing you need to note here, Jesus got wearied. Jesus went through the same weariness and the same tiredness. He got tired. He, was, he felt pain. He went through suffering, just as we do. Okay? Yet he continued to do the things that, he, that God had called him to do. Um, he didn't make excuses. Sometimes we make too many excuses. So he was there, and he's, he's tired. He's wearied. He needs a drink of water, um, and he sits, he sits on the well. Interestingly, if you look at the description here, it says that Jacob's well was there. Okay, you notice that it says Jacob's well? And it was in, in Samaria. The Samaritans themselves say they are descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. And actually, there are still some Samaritans in existence today. And they say they're descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. Who were, the, who were, the, who was, who were they sons of? Joseph. Joseph. And here they, we have Jacob's well that he gave to his son Joseph. And the, and the Samaritans believe that they're descendants of, um, of them, which is interesting anyway. Let's continue. Verse 7 says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into, unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It's an interesting uh, response, isn't it? I oh, can I have a drink. What are you talking to me for? I'm a woman of Samaria. What are you, what are you talking to me for? The Jews don't talk to, to Samaritans. Um, yeah, Jesus broke the norms. <laughs> Jews did not speak to Samaritans. And Jewish men did not speak to women in public, especially if you're a rabbi. You shouldn't be talking to women. In fact, some Jewish rabbis or Jewish men didn't speak to their own wives in public. How's that? Jesus was breaking certain norms over here. They were, it wasn't acceptable for a man like a rabbi like Jesus to be speaking to a Samaritan and a woman as well. But yet he started this conversation uh, with her and she finds it strange that he's asking her for water. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's going to he's talking to someone which was an outcast. Someone who had been who's rejected. Someone who says you shouldn't spend any time with that person because they're they're unredeemable. Irredeemable. What's the word? Is it irredeemable or unredeemable? Who's English teachers? Do you have any English teachers here? We have one. It's irredeemable. Irredeemable. Thank you very much. Hey John, good to have a mathematician and an English scholar as well. Jesus went to people and Jesus spoke with people who were irredeemable. He, went, he spoke and, and, and spent time with publicans who were despised in their own culture. He spent time talking to prostitutes and people that... Even in our culture, you'd say, keep away from those people. Don't even go anywhere near them because you might be infected by them. And this was exactly the case here. He's gone and spoke to a woman that was, who was part of a group that was absolutely despised by the Jews. They had corrupted their religion. They had corrupted the Jewish faith, made up their own temple, made their own, made, uh, had their own scriptures, and they were half-castes as well. They were, they were half-breeds. They weren't really Jews. And yet Jesus speaks to them. We have to be careful that we don't disregard certain people in our culture who our culture says are irredeemable. And, Christian, and some other Christians might say are irredeemable. Uh, we need to go we're simply where God tells us to go. To speak the words that God tells us to speak. If Jesus had followed protocol, um, he would never have spoken to this woman. And not only she wouldn't have been saved, but all the people that were with her later on that we find wouldn't have been saved either. So Jesus, this woman is startled that Jesus would even speak to her, not only as a woman, but as a, as a Samaritan. And she understood that Jesus was doing something outside of the norm. He was going outside to speak to her. 
Now, what message might this have given to this woman? If someone who doesn't normally talk to you, who despises you, comes along and says, hey, can I have a drink? You know, things, uh, the walls can break down pretty quickly between people when a nice word said. <laughs> Jesus had a way of breaking down those walls. And maybe we should have better ways of breaking down walls between us and people who don't agree with us. And if we're speaking with, with people who might be atheists, who might think you know, they hate us or whatever, sometimes they've heard a ton of stuff about us, right? So how, how much stuff have, has an atheist got in his head about Christians and how backwards and stupid and whatever it is they are? Um, they've, got, they've, got this fixate, they've got this thing fixed in their minds about what we're like, right? Um, and maybe homosexuals think of Christians as, as people who hate them. They might talk to you and at the back of their mind they might be thinking, this person hates me or Christians hate me, I'm not going to talk to them. But how long does it take to break down those perceptions or those preconceived ideas when you have a kind word for someone? Sometimes they break down pretty quickly. When you show them that you're not the, the devil in disguise and you're not as closed-minded and bigoted as they think or they've been told that you are. Jesus spoke to a woman that he wasn't supposed to be speaking to. I'll leave that with you. There are a multitude of people in our society who feel that they've been rejected and totally unloved. The scriptures, the scriptures tell us to love all people, all. In fact, it tells us to love our enemies. So let's say someone is your enemy and you're sitting next to him. An enemy. Now, there aren't many enemies that we have who absolutely hate us and want our destruction. Let me, let me put that to you. Okay? We might have people we disagree with, but you probably don't have direct, too many direct enemies. But if you were sitting next to someone who was an absolute enemy of yours and wanted to kill you, the Bible says that we're called to love them. Right? Now, how do you show love to an enemy? I can tell you the best way to show love to an enemy is to share the gospel with them. That means you actually love them and you want the best for them. Oh, they might not agree with you, but sharing the gospel is the greatest way to show love. You'll notice that in this conversation that Jesus starts, he starts it on a, on a, as a normal conversation, as, a, as part of a natural conversation. Can I have a drink of water? Like he, doesn't, he doesn't actually talk about, go straight into the gospel. Thus saith the Lord. As soon as she arrives at the well. He just starts off with just a natural sort of uh, conversation. Um, it's okay to talk about the weather with people that you've, you're meeting for the first time. It's okay to talk about some news item that's going on in the world or things that might be affecting people in our culture or whatever it is. It's okay to start those conversations on a natural. In fact, it's better to start your conversations with people you like to share the gospel with on a natural level because they'll begin to calm down with you, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, when the first time you meet someone, they start talking to you, everyone's guards up, aren't they? I mean, if you were to sit someone next, next to a train and they, and they started a conversation with you, are you naturally going to feel comfortable having a, a conversation with that person? No, everyone's got their guard up a bit. But as soon as you start talking about, I mean, if you were talking to a football supporter, they had your team do this week. It's neither here nor there, that conversation, is it? But you know what? That person may begin to open up and says, you know, my team lost again. If they're a Carlton supporter. Yeah, my team not doing well this year. Okay. Oh, that's a bit sad. What are they doing? Have you got any new players that have come into the team? You know, any, any prospects there? Oh, yeah. And as soon as you start talking about stuff that they like to talk about, people will start talking. And people love to talk about themselves. Because you know why people love talking about themselves? Because they want other people to understand them. Actually, most people in this world think that no one understands them and what they're going through. So they're desperate to tell you about themselves. Let them talk. Let them talk. Start with the natural, and then you swing to the spiritual. Once God opens that door and says, ah, okay, they're talking about fears. They've got fears. They've got, they've got the concerns. They, they might have something that's happened to them. Who knows what's happened to them? Um, the gospel is easily easy to weave into a whole lot of different uh, scenarios. Okay, um, Jesus swings from the natural to the spiritual, and he uses an example of water. 
So he started, started the conversation with just water. He's already got it worked out what he wants to talk to her about. But it's something she understood. Water is something she, came to the, she would come to the well to every day for. She understood what it was like to carry it, to, to walk to a well, carry his bucket on her shoulder. It was important. I mean, we turn on taps at home and water comes out of all different taps and places or whatever it is. Um, but to get water in those days, mate, it was pretty precious. You'd have to walk to a place, carry a bucket, bring it all the way home. Mate, that, that water was pretty important, wasn't it? If you, if you spilt your bucket, you wouldn't be, um, you wouldn't be too happy. Um, look at verse 10. Because he's going to tell us something very important now, just with this simple topic of water. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knew it was the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. You haven't got a bucket to, to bring down the well. And the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and, and his children and his cattle? So Jesus now starts to... He's sharing some deeper theological truth. He's using the water as an analogy for something spiritual that he's, that he's offering her. And he tells her that, that he can give her this water as a gift. And this, this water is a, a lot better um, than what she's, that what she's been drinking. But the Samaritan woman doesn't quite understand what Jesus is talking about. She think, thinks he's talking about natural water that she's always drawn from. She's thinking, where else is he getting this water? Is he able to go somewhere deeper to get this water or what? What's this living water got to do with anything? But Jesus was obviously speaking to her about spiritual water, the one that brings everlasting life, the one that when you drink it, quenches your thirst forever. Yeah? So water is an analogy of salvation. Someone who has, when Praveen prayed for, God can speak to you know, dead bones and bring them life. Um, well, this earth is parched dry when it comes to water, when it comes to spiritual water. It's parched. It has no, it's, it's, when you don't drink for a while, you're dead. So Jesus is offering water that, that will quench your thirst and keep you hydrated, because hydration is very important in our culture, um, keep you hydrated forever. That's salvation. So he has to explain it a bit more to her. So she doesn't quite get it. He started the introduction. He's, he's gone from the natural to the spiritual, and he's offered her something to see whether she understands it. And she hasn't understood it. So he has to go in again and explain it again. So in verse 13, it says, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, the one that she was drawing. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Oh, that's a big uh, statement. And verse 15, the woman saith to him, Sir... Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Mate, if you give me this water, I won't have to come back to this well anymore. Once again, she hasn't quite hit the mark, has she? She hasn't quite got it. She thinks that if he gives her this special water, that she won't have to go back to the well. Hasn't quite understood that there is a spirit that he's actually switched it over to spiritual uh, yet, but he continues to explain it to her. Jesus is plainly telling her that drinking this water will give her everlasting life. He's offering her salvation, but the woman now is asking for the water, so she's actually believed him that he's got something to give her that is going to give her everlasting life, even though she thinks it's something material. She wants it now. Because if it's true, then she wants what he's got to offer. Now, there's a great lesson for us when we, when we seek to share the gospel with people um, that, we, that may not know us or maybe it's the first time we've spoken to them. Understand that as Jesus is restating this thing once, twice, three times, Sharing the gospel often comes with multiple attempts, not just one. Okay? You know, I, I appreciate uh, tracts when we give out tracts. But someone who reads a tract for the first time 
and maybe it's the first time they've heard the gospel, are very unlikely to make that decision. Because normally, they would have to hear the gospel a number of times. Because understand this, everyone in, in our culture, in every culture in the world, is conditioned from a very young age to believe a certain way. Okay? So by the time you get to them with the gospel, they've already been conditioned and thought about salvation if they believe in a God, and 90% of people in the world believe in some sort of a God, right? They, they're either Hindu or Buddhist or, or, or whatever it is, even in Christendom, right? Um, they believe in some God, but every one of them has been conditioned to believe that getting to heaven or earning merit with God comes by our effort. It comes by our works. And that there's a scale at the end of life when it comes time for the judgment. And if it's, if it's leaning more on the good side than the bad side, then you either ascend to the next level, get to nirvana, um, don't come back, don't get reincarnated as a, as a, as a pig or a, or a rat or something like that. Um, you come back a higher, in a higher form. Okay? Or if you've, you've hit the jackpot, you're actually going straight to heaven. Most people believe that getting to that place takes effort. They're working their way there. So when you share the gospel for the first time and you say, you know, salvation comes, you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Don't expect them to understand it like that. Because we rattled off that verse probably hundreds and thousands of times in our lives and we still don't quite fully get it. <laughs> We're still learning it. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone who's spiritually blind, don't expect them to, to understand that these concepts that we've come to take for granted in our own lives and have come to put our trust in for them to understand overnight because they won't. So just as Jesus explains himself a number of times and from a number of different angles, be prepared to be patient and to share the truth in a number of different ways with them. Be patient. Now that Jesus has her interest though, he now swings to show her what her problem is and what this actual water is a solution for. Look at verse 16 and 17. And 18, he says, Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. All right, go and get thy husband and come back here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. So she had five husbands. The fellow she was living with now wasn't her husband. So she's living with someone. So she's living in a moral life. Okay. So, but what's interesting about this whole thing is that she said, I have no husband, which was actually the truth. But she didn't go and tell him that the man she was with, she was living with in fornication. But he knew it already. What's interesting about this particular thing is that she may have, and what's if you look at when she arrived at the well, it says she arrived at the sixth hour. What time is the sixth hour? Do you even know what time the sixth hour is? In it's lunchtime. It's noon. When would most people go and get water from a well? Would they would they get it in the in the middle of the day, when it's the hottest? Yeah, you get it first thing in the morning. So why is she coming? And normally, women who go to a well. They normally go by themselves. They would normally go together in groups. So this lady is going there by herself in the middle of the day rather than early in the morning when it's cool and when you can bring water back and do stuff with and get ready for lunch. Um, it may be that she was already ostracised by her own community. And the reason she's going by herself is maybe she didn't fit in the rest of them. Anyway, that's a speculation, but it may fit. But in these few verses, Jesus not only revealed um, that he was someone with very special abilities who understood her, who knew her life without her even uh, talking it, but he also laid bare her immoral existence. The sin came to the front. And most people will try to cover their sin when you ask them about it or when they're asked about it, but she really didn't have this option with Jesus. You know, when you're standing before God himself, it's a bit hard to hide your sin, isn't it? Because God knows your heart and God knows everything about you. 
So she didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And we saw a couple of, um, of uh, videos um, where Ray Comfort's actually asking people, you know, have you ever told a lie? Have you, have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever, you know, looked at a woman to last after her? Have you ever uh, taken the Lord's name in vain? And they'll sort of say, you can see some of them are sort of trying to cover it up. But when you're standing before God himself, it's a bit hard to cover things up. Her sin came to the fore. Her sin was exposed. This would have made her feel pretty uncomfortable, but it was, it was her life. And she responds in this way, drawing upon her best assumption and learning, she responds this way. Look at verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. That's a pretty good assumption. You're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worship in this mountain. All of a sudden now she's talking about spiritual things. Right? She's talking about spiritual things. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship what ye know not. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus gave this woman amazing insight into the future as well. That it would no longer, that, that faith and worshipping God would no longer be centred in a temple. It would be done in spirit and in truth. And we'll have a look at that next verse. It plainly tells her salvation is of the Jews. Who do you think he's talking about? Or what do you think he's talking about there? The Jewish people? No, he was talking about himself. He was speaking of himself. Salvation is of the Jews. And that salvation is in Christ. So he was offering her, already now pointing direction to himself as the one who would offer salvation. Look at verse 23. But the hour, um, but the hour cometh and is and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He could have said, um, you know what? You're wrong. The real temple is in Jerusalem. You guys are, I've got it all completely wrong. But he's saying to her, no, God wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And now all of a sudden, that, that, what, what are you talking about with that? You're not saying that your temple's better than our temple? Now, what do I, what do, I do with, with this? No, he was saying very clearly that the worship of God must be that which is led and energised by the Spirit of God. And that true worship can't be divorced from the truth. You can't just make up your own religion like they, they had done. You can't just make up your own stuff as you're going along, which 90% of people in our culture have done. If you ask the average person out there, they've created a God of their own making. Dig a little bit deeper, you'll find that they don't believe in the God of the Bible. They may actually call him Jesus or they may call him you know, the God of the Bible. But as soon as you start digging a little deeper, you'll find out that it's not the same God. It's a different God. They've made up a God to suit their own lifestyle. The worship of God has to be in spirit and in truth. You can't divorce those two things. So the truth can only be found where? In God's special revelation that he's given to man. The thing that we hold in our hands on a Sunday morning and read every day of our lives. That's where the truth is to be found. You want to find the real God of this universe? You'll find him there. Because he reveals himself in those pages. Without that truth, without that reality, you're groping in the dark for a God that doesn't exist. And sure, you'll come up with a... Ever seen those totem poles? You know, the Indian totem poles? Where they have one, one thing on top of another, all the different... Yeah, that's what people's gods are like. They've got a god here, and then they put another god on top, another god on top. One's got a smiley face, one's got a happy face, one's got a, a sad face. It's their own making, and they just build that thing up themselves. And Jesus says you can't separate the worship of God from truth. And that has to be done through the Spirit, which means you have to have the Spirit. And that's the truth we've been called to reveal to the world. This woman didn't have that truth, but she was discovering it. He was beginning to share it with her. And now the woman reveals what she already knew. Look at verse 25. It says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah 
cometh. I know that the Messiah is meant to come, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And look at Jesus now. He does it. He cuts straight to the thing. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Straight. You're waiting for the Messiah? You're waiting for the Messiah? You want the truth? That's me. He gave her the most important thing that she needed to understand. That this man who was speaking to her was the promised Messiah. He was the Christ, the Saviour of the world. And that's the message of the Gospel, the ultimate truth. That the, that the, the Saviour of this world and the Lord of Lords and King of Kings is Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth. But let's see. So she's come to that conclusion. He's now told her he's the Messiah. Okay, He's told that he can offer eternal life. Let's see what happens. Because he's, his disciples are about to try to mess this thing up. It says in verse 27, And upon this came his disciples. All right, here, here come the cavalry, all right? The cavalry have arrived. They've come back from doing their shopping at the supermarket and marveled that he talked with the woman. Okay, what is he doing talking to that woman? Right? But it says there, Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? Like They were afraid to say to him, What are you doing? Like, what are you talking to that woman for? But they marveled with themselves that he would even talk to a woman. Verse 28 says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and, say, and saith to the men, Now she's gone, look what she's gone and done. She's pretty much convinced herself that he's the Messiah. She's called him a prophet. She loves his message. She wants that water. And now he's gone and told her he's the Messiah. What does she go do? She goes back to her town. And even though she's probably an outcast from her town or probably someone who's not of high regard, um, it says there the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men... Come see a man which told me all the things that I that ever I did. It's a slight exaggeration there, but anyway, is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now we'll find out later on. They didn't actually believe what she had to say. They probably thought she was a little bit of a crackpot. But she went actually and told them, "Come and listen to this guy." She invites she invites them to come and listen to him, so they can. Help her make up her mind finally. Or maybe reinforce what she's already believing. She's convinced that, he's, that he is the Messiah. But she wants to get others' opinion, people's opinions first, okay? Which is a normal thing for people to do. Just let me give you a word of advice here. Um, be aware, when you're having a discussion with someone, let's say you're sharing the gospel with someone, and maybe someone at work, and you, you know, you're spending lunch times together, and you're sharing the Bible with them, and you're telling them about Jesus. Be prepared that... When they, when they go home, they're talking to someone else. They're probably sharing what you're telling them with someone else. And that someone else may say, oh, yeah, tell us a bit more. Or that someone else may be saying, don't listen to them. They're crazy. Be prepared that when you speak to someone in a group, which I don't suggest you normally do to share the gospel, because what ends up happening is if, if you're part of a group, they're all trying to show off in front of everyone else. Or they have to save face in front of everyone else. So if they try and stump you with a question and you, and you have the answer for them that makes them look a bit silly, all of a sudden they're going to put, have their back up even more. The best conversations about the gospel are had one-on-one. -on -one, but be prepared that those people will normally go and seek other people's counsel before they make up their mind finally. That's, it's actually a, a good thing to understand. Okay? Um, but in the meantime, his disciples are concerned about him. They're concerned. You started talking to a woman. What's he, what's he going on about there? A Samaritan woman? What are you, what are you doing? And, it's, and um, <laughs> while, while this woman's going, while he shared the gospel with her, she's going out telling uh, other people about that Jesus is the Messiah. They're worried about, did he eat? <laughs> they could have been Italians, these people. John chapter 4 verse 31 then says in the meanwhile his disciples this is almost a comical part in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him saying master eat you have to eat but he said unto them I have meat to eat that you know not of 
Therefore said the disciples one to another, Have any man brought him or to eat? Who brought him food? Did you bring him food? No. Did you bring him food? No. We just came back from the supermarket with you. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's what he was doing. Say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap what whereon ye bestowed no labour. Other men laboured, and ye are entered into their labours. This, this lesson is, is a direct lesson for us. What he's telling them is directly for us. We've, we can offer enter into labours that have already been done ahead of time for us, and we go and get to reap. You know, if you ever get a chance to sit down and lead someone to the Lord together, it's the most thrilling thing you could ever do. Okay, uh, and 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 the, I can't help myself from crying every time it happens. Um, but one thing we need to understand is, if I had the opportunity to reap at that particular point, it's only because someone else sowed way before me. It's because someone else laid the foundations, and I got a chance to reap. Now we don't all get a chance to reap. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But just be aware that one is sowing, another is reaping. One is watering, another one's planting. There is a team effort here. And if we get to reap, well, that's a blessing for us. Um, and I hope you get to have that multiple times in your life, to share the gospel with someone so they're ready to pray and receive the Lord as their saviour. But if it doesn't come, understand that God doesn't forget the sowing that you've done. God does not forget the planting that you've been involved with. He never forgets the words that you speak to people around you, sowing those seeds of the truth in their life. And if someone else on the track gets to reap and gets to pray with that person and lead them to the Lord, then fantastic. You're part of that. And one day, it's all going to be revealed. You know that? You know, I'm looking forward to that day when we're going to be able to, we're going to stand in front of the Lord and he's going to say, see these people over here? You were instrumental in leading them to me and having them saved. You played your part here, 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 here and here. I mean, the Lord, the Bible says that God does not forget one cup of water that you give to someone in his name. Not one cup. So imagine when you share the gospel with someone and you share the good news with someone. God does not forget those things. So just remember to com continue with those things um, and understand that God is the one who gives the increase every time. He's the one who's the, the major labourer here. But we need to commit ourselves to, to making evangelism and sharing the gospel a significant part of our lives. It needs to be a serious part of our lives, not just a, a side thing that you might do once in a blue moon. But we need to be looking out for opportunities always because there are too many people in this world who are lost and too few labourers in the field. The field has gotten much bigger from Jesus' day. Would you agree? I mean, he was saying the fields were white already to harvest. What was the population of the earth then compared to the six-plus billion people on this planet that we have, and most of those don't know the Lord? So we have a significant job ahead of us uh, with very few resources. So don't waste the time God's given you, because every day that he's given you to live on this planet is a day we should use for him. Okay? Let's, let's finish off. John 4.39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified he told me all that I ever did and when the, so, the, so when the Samaritans were come unto him they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days and many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman now we believe not because of thy saying for we have received we have heard him ourselves and know that this indeed is indeed the Christ the saviour of the world Now, when you, when you look at that, and this has been my experience when sharing the gospel, that when you share the gospel with someone in a particular family who's never heard the gospel, 
they'll go and tell the other family members as well. So oftentimes when one person gets saved in a family where the gospel has never reached before, they'll actually evangelise their own family because I'll want them to be saved too. And the Bible says that the, the, effect, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now we need to be fervent, not with just our prayers, but our efforts in sharing the gospel with people. But the people I've found, the, what I've found is that people pray most fervently about the people that they love. That's what I found. When someone you love is affected, when someone you love isn't saved, when someone you love is going through illness or whatever, you know what? It affects you more than other people around. And so you tend to pray a lot more fervently for the people that you love and are close to. But that's true also for evangelism. You know, we often reach the people first that we love and that we're close to. And that's natural. But when you share the gospel with someone and they get saved, they're probably going to reach their own family as well. So it multiplies. So remember always to share the gospel. Remember always how important this job that we have is. And remember always that God goes before us. Keep your eyes on him. God bless you. Thank you.